greetings to you from Wesleyan Investment Foundation. I'm from Indianapolis, and it's good to be in a place where God is from. That's always South Carolina, for those of you who are wondering. But uh, anyway, always good to be here and uh, great to see so many friends and uh, meeting some new friends. I am working with 10 churches every year. Your church has been chosen. I'm not sent here by anyone. I'm here because there's so many good things going on at Trinity Wesleyan, and there's some things that perhaps God would love for us to simply put the full throttle down, if I can use that term, and get after it for Jesus Christ. Amen? So there are many, many people in this region, thousands and thousands of university students who need Jesus as their Savior and Lord, and what a great place, even just a half mile down the road from Lowe's. And uh, really easy for me to find, a great place, a great property. You have a great pastor. You've had wonderful pastors in the past, some of them here today. And uh, I'm just thrilled to be able to work with the church this year. We're praying for divine moments this year. It's more than strategic planning. It's more than trying to get focused. It really is trying to honor Christ in every way possible. And uh, there are many, many good things going on. We're just hoping to build on those and be a part of growing God's kingdom. Amen? Amen. But I'm here to preach this morning, so enough with the commercial. If you want to talk about the foundation, I can talk to you about that in between services or after the second service, whichever you prefer. And I'm in Psalm 90 today with a sermon called Your Life Counts. Your Life Counts. Psalm 90.12 simply says this. Perhaps you're familiar with it. Maybe it's new. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That's kind of a peculiar phrase at the end of that verse because hearts really don't think, do they? Our brains do the thinking for us. We process information through our heads, we think. But in this particular day where this Psalm of Moses would have been written, they would say that as a man or even as a woman in contemporary paraphrase today thinks in his or her heart, so is he, so is she. And so we're talking about the motives of what's going on in our lives. We're we're talking about things way down deep in our hearts or maybe where I'm from in the West anyway, we would say all the way down to your big toe, wherever that goes, that's exactly where all the motives come from in life. And when we process this particular verse, he's just simply saying all the way through Psalm 90, if you want to read it later or maybe you want to read it now if this sermon's boring enough for you, that your days are indeed numbered, that you thought your mom taught you that I brought you into this world and I can take you out. No, actually it's God that did that. And Moses is the one who's reminding of us of this, this, this particular truth. And it's something that uh, a lot of people think, you know what, I can control my own destiny. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. I will create my path even to the grave, if you listen to culture today. And the fact of the matter is, I'm pretty sure it's in Psalm 90. I'd love to translate the Hebrew for you this morning. It simply says that God's in control of everything. You came from dirt and you control diddly squat. Pretty sure that's in the Hebrew. (laughs) I didn't take that much Hebrew, so I I really don't know. But I think that's what it's saying. 
It really does call us dirt. You can have a little bit of fun with somebody that you know. You better know them well before you tease them this way. But, you know, they think they're really all that and a bag of chips and all that stuff. And they think they're really a full picnic. And you can go to them and say, you know what, you're, you're nothing better than dirt. But you better know them pretty well before you get into that kind of comment. What, what do you do to make your life count? How do you make your life count? People struggle with this all over the place. How do I make my life count? There's two or three things I want to share with you today. And uh, it's really something I'm trying to do justice to this verse, but pay attention because the first thing is the first thing, and I don't want you to yawn through the first thing because it's the most important thing, and it's the first thing because of that priority. You ready? You make your life count by living for Jesus Christ. You make your life count for living for Jesus Christ. And a lot of people in churches today say, yeah, 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 what's point number two? But we have to get this one correct. We have to get this right because there really isn't any other way that we have life to begin with other than through Jesus. You say, well, I I don't know him. I'm not in a personal relationship with him. Well, he, being God himself, the creator, has come to show us not only how to live but to even give us life and to give us life that will last forever. Last time I checked, nobody's life lasts forever. My, my grandfather would put it this way, who pastored for over 50 years in the, in the Wesleyan Church, in the Church of the Nazarene. He said, Jim, anytime you do a funeral, look at the back of the hearse when you follow the family out or you, you lead the casket out of the funeral home. And there you are, as everybody's processing to the cemetery. Look at the back of the hearse. There's no hitch on a hearse. He said, you don't take anything with you. There's nothing that you can program that somehow controls even the day that you give your last breath on this, on this earth, in this life. And there is no better way than to make your life count than to give your life and live your life for the one who gave you life to begin with. And that's Jesus. There's no better day, way, day than today than to make Jesus your Savior, than to accept Jesus as your Savior. We talk about this fact that we're supposed to repent. It's a good Bible term. It's a good term that some people uh, shy away from today. But repentance means to literally turn. It means to turn away from. And just to illustrate it for you a little bit today, I don't want to hit a music stand this morning, but just uh, to make sure that you're awake, I'm not going to ask you to do this personally, but you can try it out later in the parking lot if you'd like to. Make sure you have a little bit of space. But it means that you turn away. If that's the way of the world, and this is the way of the cross, and I know it's rude for me to turn your back, my back on you when I'm speaking, but here we go. You ready? That I'm going to turn my back on sin, on the way of the world, and I'm going to follow the way of the cross. I'm going to say to him, thank you for saving my soul. Thank you for changing my life. Thank you for transforming my surroundings. I want to follow you all of my days. But here's what happens in North American theology. We make repentance a full turn instead of a half turn. Are you ready? We say, I'm tired of following the way of the world. I know that I'm doing wrongly. I want to be somebody who is a follower of Christ. But we simply say to him, thank you for saving me. I've got some other stuff I want to catch up on. And if you could just kind of give me a warning, maybe, just maybe, by the time you get to Greenville, if you're just sweeping across from the eastern sky and you get over here near Central or near Clemson, then maybe you could give me a warning. I could go to Trinity Wesley and I could repent again. I could get on my knees and confess all of my sins there. Thank you for saving me. I've got some living I'd like to do back over this way. Repentance is 180. It's not 360. Repentance means to turn. 
It means that you pray a prayer where you ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin, where you ask him to help you to live a life that is pure, that is clean. And he's either going to help us do that or his word and he himself is a liar. The ability to live a godly life is founded and is, is resource is, is given every bit of potential in the fact that Jesus wants to save you and he also wants to lead you. That's the only way that you'll be able to do it. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the message, but, but we need to take this very seriously. And I hope you haven't lost the joy of your salvation, but, but just in case someone hasn't decided that. Someone hasn't said, I'm sick of following the world's way. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And you want to turn your life to Christ. We're going to pray a prayer right now at the beginning of this message. Some of you think, man, this is awesome. We're going to be done in seven minutes or less. This is the best sermon ever. We're going to pray a very serious prayer. It's the best prayer that's ever existed. And that is the prayer to ask for forgiveness, to ask Jesus to come into your life and to accept him as your Savior. If you'd like to pray this prayer along with me, just simply repeat it, but let's pray. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Come into my life and change me. Be my Savior like only you can. I can't save myself. I don't control anything, frankly. And so I ask you that you will come into my life I accept you as my Savior, and I pray that from this day on, I will be your true follower. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, the guy in the red shirt, Pastor Mike, it was up here a little bit earlier. He needs to see you today. Not to scare you, not to say, hey, uh, you need to sign over all your papers to the church. That's not what we do. It is literally to be in a process and in a relationship with the church, with the pastor, and getting in groups that are starting this week where you have support in your walk with Jesus Christ. Nobody walks alone in this life. That is not the intent of any Christianity. And so be in a relationship with your pastor. Get to him today. And just in case somebody made that decision today, I'm wondering, I'm one, I know I'm in tiger territory this morning, and I, I, I can honor that. I was afraid I was going to wake up with a tiger paw on my forehead this morning because there's so many tiger paws around here in orange and purple. But i got to tell you something. People will be cheering already, maybe in, even in scrimmages this weekend, maybe next weekend as the football season kicks off and the national champs are taking the field again. But the best thing to cheer about just happened, perhaps, in Trinity Wesleyan Church today. Why don't we give God a hand clap for salvation this morning? Can we do that? Now, I had a speech teacher in high school that simply said to me once in a while, when you're expressing something meaningful, you probably ought to add a little feeling to that. So how about one more time? Let's thank Jesus for his saving grace today. Amen. <laughs> Next time, you're going to have to paint yourself orange and purple and really mean it. All right? I know you mean it. There's no better day than today to make Jesus your Savior. and There's no better day than today to declare Jesus your Lord. That he really is the one who is in charge of your life. Anybody since last Sunday control everything in your life? I'm looking for hands. Controlled everything. 
Some of you guys are students. You didn't get any syllabi this week. No, uh-uh. I get to control everything. I get to tell the professors what to do when I take a course. Nobody? Nobody controls everything in your life? You've got to be kidding me. You know, I mean, you can even control hurricanes off the coast of Texas. I was amazed, even in the hotel lobby this morning, as I was grabbing a bite to eat before coming here to preach, and and there was a newscast on this horrible, horrible hurricane that is devastating the coast, the Gulf of Texas, and, and uh, you know, 20-some inches that it's going to hit Houston on some of the bands, and they're just going to sit there this week and just rain and rain and rain and rain over southern Texas. And it's really not because they're bad people. They're great friends of mine that live in that region and are devastated with loss of home and even life and all kinds of goods. But but this guy in the hotel was screaming at the television because somebody decided to stay. And the guy on television said, it's the worst decision of my life to stay. I thought I could weather the storm. They had to come and get me. And this guy yelled back at the television just this morning, you don't deserve to be saved. Every person who's ever been conceived is made in the image of Jesus Christ. And every person is worthy of his salvation. Every person deserves to be saved. That's not something we can arrange. That's not something we can control. Why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I if Jesus has given his life for me on the cross of Calvary? He's raised from the dead for my life so that I could have life for eternity in heaven with him and even life abundantly here on this earth. Why wouldn't I want to follow him? Why wouldn't I make him Lord of my life? I need somebody to hold my life in the grip of his hand. Do you? No better day than today to make Jesus your Savior. There's no better day than today to make Jesus your Lord. In word, in thought, and in deed, live your life for Jesus. That's number one of today, and it should always be number one. Don't yawn through that point, church. Be someone who is full of joy because of the salvation and the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the way you make your life count. You're kidding. No, I'm not. That is the way you make your life count then there's some things that flow from that. There's some outcomes that come from that. You make your life count by living for Jesus. You make your life count by loving your family. Loving your family comes right on the heels of loving God, of loving Jesus. It comes right on the heels of it. But in our culture today, you'd think that loving family was the most important thing that ever existed, as long as you're getting along with them, of course. I love my family as long as they do everything I want them to do, sometimes we say, and maybe even just mentally we kind of live that out. But you will never love your family right until you love Jesus right. It's impossible. You say, no, I, I, I think I can do it. I think I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I can generate enough love. I mean, just look at the frow on my forehead. I'm a very loving person, you understand. 
You do that in your own strength, and all of a sudden you're saying things you didn't mean to say, and you're doing things you didn't mean to do, and, and you have attitudes that you never intended to have, and, and you're wondering, you're kind of spinning circles in that whole salvation repentance thing, and, you, and you're wondering, why, why am I just doing all this stuff? I, I don't know the good I'm supposed to do. And perhaps, perhaps you haven't taken care of the first thing, first and foremost in your life, because you'll never love your family right until you love Jesus right. You say, no, I, I think people are born good. I think we're naturally good. So if that's the case, I, I have a, a science experiment for you, a research experiment perhaps. I, I would love for you if you get proper approval, you go through the steps of uh, how, what, what it takes to do this, and you can't just go off and do this on your own, but, but if you get the proper approval, I would love for you to volunteer in the two-year-old nursery at Trinity Wesleyan Church just once and make some observations. Who taught them all that stuff? Who taught them how to bite if you were a biter like me? Who, who taught them how to steal and to hoard and to scream and throw a fit? over just about anything that involves me, of course, my preferences and everything that I want. If we're born naturally good, I just have a question for your experiment. Who taught them that? Where did they get it? No, we, we, we need a Savior right out of the start. We, we need a Lord right out of the start. We need somebody that will come in front of us and on top of us and below us and on our right and on our left and through the Spirit of Christ himself to change us into his image and change us into his character. Your children, by the way, need to know that you think they're terrific. And I know, I know, you might be saying today, you don't know my kids. They didn't clean their room today. Did, did you? Now, I know I'm in the South. You make your bed every morning. I get that. But seriously, did you always behave? Well, you know, my, my kids, they just, they just kind of do their own thing, okay? Do you? My kids are selfish, all right? Are you? I decided a long time ago, I have a 22-year-old and almost 23 and a 21-year-old, just turned 21, a boy and a girl. The boy is off to Asbury Seminary this fall as a student there. He and his wife have settled there outside of Lexington, and I have a daughter who's a junior in, in college. She's a missions major. I decided a long time ago that no one was going to be the first one to tell my children they were terrific. I decided a long time ago, no coach, no music director, no band director, no art teacher, nobody in academics, nobody was going to say, you know what, you're a good kid. That is my privilege as their daddy, and I decided I'd do it just about every day. As a matter of fact, I text my children still, even though my son's married, and I text he and his wife, and then I text my daughter every morning, and I tell them how proud I am of them. And it doesn't seem to get old to them, either that or they're humoring me and saying thank you. I also text to them a prayer that I pray every morning based on a verse of the day that's fed to my phone. I, I'm a dumb guy with a smartphone, okay? So if you don't like technology, well, you're just going to have to get with it. But anyway, I'm trying to teach my 84-year-old mother how to text her grandchildren, and she's doing it. It's a miracle, and God still exists to prove that fact. But here we are texting each other every morning. You say, I can't get my, my kids to text me back. 
Well, it could be that you're on their case all the time, wondering if they're going to church this morning. Why don't you try a little bit of the positive flavor, tell them how proud you are of them, and that they're always your kid. You say, they're outside of Christ, Jim. I don't know if I can do that. They are still your child, and they, according to your faith, are a child of the king, and they will repent someday as you placed good seeds in them. They still have a decision to make, perhaps. There is no better day than today than to tell your children, you think they are terrific. You say, I can't get my kids to text me back. I don't think they listen. I got a secret for you. My kids text me back every morning. You know why? <laughs> I own their phone. <laughs> it's pretty simple. You don't want to text me back? Get your own phone. Nah, kids don't rule my household. I never ruled mine either as a kid. You can set up some boundaries. You can set up some expectations. And I was able to tell my own children this morning, I, I've heard from my daughter. I don't know where my son is this morning. But anyway, he, he'll text me, and she just said, thank you, Daddy. I love you. By the way, speaking of that, there's no better day than today than to let your spouse know that you love them. You say, I don't have a spouse. I don't either. My wife passed away November 4th, 2013, four years ago this November. She was 44. I would love to tell her I love her today. There were occasions where uh, I developed some habits in telling her that I loved her. It, it actually started when email existed. You remember email? Some of you will have to Google that, find out what emails is. And, uh, you know, it was every conversation and it was every email. And you say, you've got to be kidding me. I, I'm not going to tell my wife or my husband I love them every day. You better. Somebody else might. Is that a threat? No, it should come from the big toe of your heart where down in the motives you either love them or you don't. And it's okay to say it. Now, I know. Now, I know, Bubba. I know. I know. You are in a church about like this. And you gathered here at the center aisle, and you looked at her coming down that aisle, and you smiled, and she smiled back at you, and you looked at her dad, and he was frowning, so you looked back at her, because you didn't want that kind of look coming. And he gave her hand to your hand, and said, me and my, my mother and I, her, her mother and I, we give you this, this relationship, and we bless this. And I'm pretty sure in the vows of that ceremony, you probably said something about the word love. And some of you are convinced that ought to be good enough for a lifetime. I told you once that ought to be good. I don't know anybody that doesn't want to hear I love you and mean it. It could be that you don't have a spouse like me. It could be that you don't have children to tell them you're terrific. There's a spiritual family that needs to know they're terrific as well. There are people in this congregation that you genuinely love that you need to say this to before you leave this church building this morning. I love you. There was a point in time, two months into ministry for me, as we had just gotten married, we had just taken our first church, where I was taken hostage by a gunman for four hours. There was a 38 pistol held at my head for four hours by a member of my church. I was new to the church, not sure what the membership qualifications were, but I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to take your pastor hostage. He came in and he said, it'd take, take a lot of guts, wouldn't it, pastor, to, to, to kill yourself and shoot somebody important, wouldn't it? I, I have a pretty decent sense of humor, I think. And I, I thought, first of all, I hope you're a good shot, because if you're going to kill yourself first, I think I'll be okay. 
Secondly, I'm not that important. I just got here to go shoot the mayor. He's important. I don't have, I got nothing. You'll get a little itty bitty clip in the paper on me. You'll get full page if you shoot the mayor. I, I don't know what you're thinking. Held me for four hours. Had nightmares for years. I decided that night I'd tell my new bride I loved her in every conversation. As a matter of fact, I, I, I remembered from, from junior high, from middle school, that if you use certain punctuation, it means something different. And so I started saying, I love you, exclamation point. Because an exclamation point means you have feeling. It means it's important. It means there's passion behind it. it it's significant. And so I would write on an email or every word, as I said. I, I thought if something ever happened to me, I wanted her to hear the last words from me would be, I love you. So I was on the phone. It says, I left the house. It says, we went to sleep. It's every email, eventually every text. I was a wreck one day because the shift one on my keyboard stopped working. It, it broke. Don't ask me. The rest of the keys worked. I used the exclamation point so much that it broke. I was a mess. I lived out in the county. I couldn't get the staples. It was crazy. I had to tell her I loved her with feeling, of course. And, and so I got smart about it, and I put I love you, parentheses, and I spelled out exclamation point, E-X-C-L-I-T-I-O-N-P-O-I-N-T, parentheses. Nobody's going to get away with telling my wife I love you without an exclamation point. It could be that she was in church with me, and oftentimes as a pastor, obviously, or maybe she was on the road with me the last 13 years and serving the denomination and serving churches everywhere and trying to encourage people and trying to inspire people to do more for Christ and not to, to, to simply add things to your schedule, but to simply get more on mission and get more focused and honor Christ in everything you do as a person, as a church, because your life counts and your church counts. And I could be preaching in a service and maybe referencing heaven and hell. You thought I was talking talking about heaven and hell, she might have been sitting over here where Pastor Wiggins is sitting and I'd be doing an exclamation point. I was talking about heaven, I was talking about hell, but I was telling her that I loved her. You can do an exclamation point. I'd draw it on her knee at a church service. I was married, it's legal, don't freak out on me. <laughs> just before midnight, November the 3rd, she died just after midnight. I took her palm and I wrote an exclamation point in her palm. She was not conscious at the time. She wasn't communicating orally anyway. And I wrote that exclamation point in her palm. And I said, I love you. She couldn't say anything other than nonverbal communication is powerful. And a tear came out of her tear duct. Do you understand that your days are numbered? Do you understand the opportunities you have today? Do you know how many people know, need to know that they're loved? Almost four years later, I'm I'm grateful to be using an exclamation point again. I, I don't know where it's going to end up, but I'm, I'm grateful to be able to do that again. You're going to have to pray for me because my wife's name was Mindy, and, and uh, this, this new lady that I went to college with that's in the relationship with me, her name is Wendy. So late-night prayers over the phone are not incredibly easy. You have to think a little bit about the difference between Mindy and Wendy when you're saying your prayers. You love them and you lead them. And just like Joshua, you serve the Lord.
There's no way you'll love your family, right, until you love Jesus, right? Then you make your life count by following God's plan. What's God's will for my life? What's God's plan for my life? God's will for your life is that you would serve and honor and follow and live for Jesus Christ, that, that you would do that. That's God's first and foremost will for your life. That's why you were created in the first place, that, that you would be in a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, and that the Holy Spirit would be leading you every step of the way. But just a couple of questions as we finish this up today. Who, who is it that God wants you to be? And what is it that he wants you to do? Sometimes we talk about calling, and, and sometimes we talk about things that even get in the way of that calling, and sometimes we only talk about pastor missionary callings or vocational ministry callings. But, but every person has a calling on their life, and God has gifted you and given you skills and abilities, and he's graced you with all kinds of personality to be able to serve and work in his kingdom I met a new trash man the other day. I was taking my toter back to uh, my garage, and 6.30 in the morning, he yells at me, Hey, man, it's 6.30. What is wrong with you? Are you a Christian? Yeah. Why are you whispering? Because it's 6.30. People are sleeping. He stops his foot on the ground. He's upset. I said, why are you upset? I need to witness for Jesus. I am a trash man for Jesus, and you're already a Christian. I'm going to the next house. <laughs> and no, it's bad to be a Christian. I love that. I was called into ministry at the age of 12 at an International Wesleyan Youth Convention in Urbana, Champaign, Urbana, Illinois, University of Illinois Assembly Hall. I went forward, I came back to my seat. My brother Glenn was sitting there and he was crying. I was 12, he was 16. Why are you crying? Nothing. What's going on? Nothing. I was the youngest, so I was the punk that bugged everybody. He wouldn't tell me. I finally got it out of him. I didn't know if a girl had turned him down when he asked for a phone number before you leave the youth convention. I, I didn't know what was wrong with him. It wasn't really normal. It's okay if you cry, but it wasn't incredibly normal of him to cry out like that. And so I just asked him, and this is what he said. I know you're called into ministry, Jim. I've seen that for a long time. I know you're wired that way, even at the age of 12, and you bug me to death. But anyway, I'm called to be a seventh-grade science teacher, but I guess that doesn't count. Glenn was uh, known as someone who had an incredible sense of humor. He was a lot of fun. So uh, there's a couple of illustrations that I could give. I only have time for one this morning. He, he uh, taught science in Wichita, Kansas, and uh, wore Jesus on his sleeves, if you know what I mean. Talked about him all the time. But one of the things that uh, he did was he would give experiments to his uh, class, and it was the largest middle school in Kansas, Derby, Kansas, Derby Middle School. And before you think there's only two people that live in Dorothy Land, it was uh, hundreds of students that he taught. And uh, one of the things he would do is he said, describe for me how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and then I'll make the sandwich the way you describe it. And so they would get these instructions, and he was trying to teach them to follow the plan. You have to follow the plan. It's the same kind of message I would leave with you today. You have to follow God's plan. I've told my children, just like Mary told the servants at the first miracle of Jesus, as they're there to, to putting water in these vessels that are sacred, a total faux pas of this wedding, and Jesus turns the water into wine. What does Mary say to those servants? You do whatever Jesus tells you to do. I've told my kids that since the day they were born. 
prayed that over them. You have to follow instruction. They're there for a reason. So anyway, he would start making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and one kid would say, you take the peanut butter and you put a knife in it. So he'd take this dagger. I don't have one because I need to fly home this afternoon. But he'd take this dagger and shove it right through the lid of the peanut butter. And the kid would say, what are you doing? He said, you told me to put the knife in the peanut butter. That's what I did. No, you take the lid off. Take that really annoying wrapper off you never get off in one piece. And, and you get your knife down in there, and you stick you know, all that lusciousness on there and get it all over your knuckles and have a love fest with that and lick all the peanut butter off. And then you put it on the bread. You don't just shove a knife right through the lid of the peanut butter. What's wrong with you? You told me to take a knife and put it in the peanut butter, and that's what I did. Another kid would say, you take the jelly, and you put it on the bread. And so he would. What are you doing? <laughs> you told me to take the jelly. Thank you very much. Only one kind for peanut butter and jelly. Sorry about you strawberry people, but grape jelly, absolutely. Concord grape, thank you very much. You told me to put it on the bread, and that's exactly what I did. You take the lid off. Almost called him a dummy one day. He told me one time. <laughs> Who reared you? My mother's name's Wilma. Thank you very much. She taught me well. Take the lid off. You get the biggest spoon in the kitchen you can. You get down in there and get all of that stuff all over the place and put it on the bread. You don't just take the jar and slam it and smash the whole loaf of bread. What is wrong with you? You told me to put the jelly on the bread, and that's what I did. Then another kid would say, you take the bread and take it out of the bag, and so he would. I always thought seventh grade science teachers were weird. You are the case study. Told me to take the bread out of the bag. Why you take the twister off? Who, who taught you that? I was just following instructions. God's instructions will never, ever disappoint you. It will never actually ruin your fun, whatever you think about that. I preached this funeral. This exact text, these precise points to a gymnasium of 2,000 people at my brother's funeral. There's a missionary in Croatia that told me he got saved and after a basketball game. My brother was a basketball coach, and he told me that life was about Jesus, not about basketball, and I gave my life to Christ in a public school. There's a teacher whose marriage had been restored, and my brother introduced him to Christ in the hallway one day as he was an alcoholic and headed down the wrong road. His wife had left him, and he came back to Christ, and he got back with his wife, and he was still married 20 years later in a public school. My, my uh, brother's superintendent came to me at the cemetery after that funeral day, and he said, you know, your brother stood up at a classroom or a, a faculty meeting, a staff meeting early on 21 years ago, and he was a rookie teacher here. And, and he just looked at me and he said, hey, uh, Mr. Superintendent, my name's Glenn, and I'd like to pray every time we meet, and I'd like to pray in Jesus' name, and I'll lead every prayer if you let me. And the superintendent said, I'm a Christian, but I kind of panicked. And I said, yes, and we could get in a lot of trouble for this in a public school. We've had one complaint. We told that guy where to go fish as a school board. Your brother led every prayer in every faculty staff meeting for 21 years, and now he's gone. And I am going to pray that prayer in Jesus' name in every faculty staff meeting as long as I'm superintendent of these community schools in Derby, Kansas. Your life counts. I ended that funeral by looking at that congregation. I ended that funeral by looking at his college freshman 
his daughter who was a senior in high school, his son who was a seventh grader, and his other son who was a fifth grader. And I looked at my sister-in-law, Rhonda, and I said, look around. Look around, people. Look around, Trinity Wesleyan. Even though you may need prayer today, even though you may stand in need of healing today as we finish this service, would you love and live for Jesus? Would you honor and love your family? And would you follow God's plan? Look around. Your life counts. Make every day count for Jesus Christ. Amen.